0: This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Have you heard about the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Program? The American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has partnered with leading experts in the field to bring you ROC, the online learning platform developed for U.S. residency programs. Free to residents, ROC empowers you to build a foundation to prepare you for the OITE and ABOS Part 1 exam. And remember, access to the ROC content is free for residents. Get started at ROCK.AAOS.org. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, and you're tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Wolwine. And we have another good episode in store for y'all. So let's just go ahead and hop into today's episode.
1: You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole.
0: Now, what is the typical treatment for femoral antiversion and internal tibial torsion? So I guess we kind of go into the into the land or if, if you think back in p- pediatric days where you had these patients uh, prone and you measure their antiversion by uh, measuring kind of their antiversion of their femur by uh, having them prone and uh, rotating their legs and seeing you if you have more uh, internal rotation versus another leg. Uh, but but what is the typical treatment for again femoral anniversion and internal tibial torsion which gives you i believe intowing.
1: yeah so the intoeing um i think is one of the most common things that pediatric orthopedic surgeons get seen uh for or that are get referred um and it's a bunch of very very concerned parents that worry that their um kids intoeing is going to cause back pain, knee pain, hip pain, all of this stuff. Most of the time, this can be treated non-operatively. Extensive patient education in that, um, especially for the younger kids, this will most likely correct as they get older and they will have forward-facing feet rather than in-towing feet. Um, But some of the operative options, you can do a derotational osteotomy, uh, but you would really want to wait until they're at least eight years old to consider operating on these patients just because they have such a high likelihood of uh, spontaneously kind of getting back to a normal uh, alignment. And uh, what are the different types of tibial bowing and their associations?
0: Yeah, so I guess this is when we need to know. So one is anterior lateral bowing, and I mean, you'll just look at the X-ray and you'll see the tibia. Um, I, I honestly look to see where the fibula is, and if it's bowing that way, it's anterior lateral bowing, because hopefully they give you AP and a lateral. Um, so anterior lateral bowing is going to be associated with neurofibromatosis. You have posterior medial bowing, uh, which is going to be associated with a calcaneal valgus foot. Then you have anterior medial bowing, which is going to be associated with a fibular deficiency. So again, anterior lateral, is going to be associated with neurofibromatosis, posterior medial, is going to be associated with calcaneal foot, and anterior medial is going to be associated with fibular deficiency. And so what are the, the typical treatment, um, I guess, options for these different types of tibial bowing in a in pediatric patient?
1: Yeah, so the anterior lateral bowing from the neurofibromatosis, Most likely, you're going to be treating those in a brace. Um, For the more severe deformities, they do develop a pseudoarthrosis, and they'll make it very obvious on the x-ray. They'll they'll show a tibia that is um, obviously in discontinuity because of that pseudoarthrosis. You can um, always do an osteotomy with an uh, intermedullary nail um, and bone grafting. Um, I don't think they're going to get so specific as it to ask about, um, bone transport or external fixation, um, deformity correction. A lot of it is just going to be, um, they have a pseudoarthrosis, what's your treatment and for the pseudoarthrosis, those ones, uh, get surgery for the posterior medial bowing. Again, that calcaneal valgus foot, um, you're just going to kind of monitor this, um, you will educate the patient and their parents on uh, development of a leg length discrepancy down the line, um, which can be an average of around four centimeters. Um, if that develops, then when they're older, you can always try some sort of bone transport or a uh, precise nail with a, uh, with a um, lengthening uh, that way. Um, and then the anterior medial bowing from the fibular deficiency Um The problem with this is uh, sometimes these patients, they will have a non-functional foot um, secondary to either some other congenital condition or because they have their fibular deficiency, they have deficiency in the development of some of the uh, musculature and and neurologic structures. And so if the foot is non-functional and it's prohibiting that patient from Being functional, you can always consider an amputation. Um, uh, If they do develop a leg length discrepancy, um, greater uh, around 10% of the leg length, um, then you can lengthen them. But if the leg length discrepancy is uh, about a third, um, that's, (laughs) that's a lot to lengthen. And you most likely will not get all of the structures to lengthen that far And so that's one of the discussions you have with the patient and their family, basically saying that if you lengthen, if you have to lengthen like multiple, multiple centimeters, it's going to eventually develop into a non-functional foot and um, may want to consider amputation for those as well. Um, And then there's another condition called longitudinal femoral deficiency and this one will most likely be tested, not necessarily on a lot of the treatment options, but what kind of uh, gene is associated with it. So which one is uh, associated with longitudinal femoral deficiency?
0: Yes, yeah, so this is going to be the, the so- sonic hedgehog gene. And, you know, hopefully if they do show you an X-ray, you'll see that one femur is just way shorter than the other um, for this longitudinal femoral deficiency. And in uh, fun fact, by uh, the Sonic Hedgehog gene, as I was just looking things up, it's called the Sonic Hedgehog gene because apparently there's a there was a uh, postdoctoral fellow named Robert Riddle um, at at some lab, and uh, his wife came home uh, with a magazine uh, having an advertisement for the game Sonic the Hedgehog, and so that is why <laughs> this gene is called the Sonic Hedgehog gene, which is interesting. Fun game I played it when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, so longitudinal femoral deficiency is going to be associated with the, the sonic hedgehog gene. Um, now, what is proximal femoral um, focal deficiency associated with?
1: Yeah, this one you, you may actually uh, get tested on these. No, um, basically they'll show you an X-ray, and for those of you that don't really know what an X-ray of, it's called PFFD, proximal femoral focal deficiency. Um, they'll just ask what other um, what other uh, conditions may you see, or what other tests may you do, or whatever. Um, so they're going to uh, most likely have deficient cruciate ligaments, and so their anterior and posterior drawer are going to be positive. Um, fibular hemimelia or absent lateral rays of the foot, and those are those are things you're going to look for. Just while you complete your entire physical exam, Um, or they may show X-rays of other conditions. And um, with PFFD, they might show like an anteromedial bowing of a tibia, or uh, a picture of an NOF lesion in the tibia, or something like that. But also a a foot X-ray that only has uh, like three digits rather than all five because they're missing the lateral rays. Though that's going to be the X-ray you're going to choose. And then the treatment for it, if it, <clears throat> the uh, projected uh, leg length discrepancy is uh, less than about, uh, I believe it's like twenty percent or twenty millimeters, you're going to lengthen them. If it's going to be greater than twenty, then you're going to consider an amputation or a uh, rotation plasty. Just because um, trying to lengthen these kids by a lot is is not going to be useful for them, it's not going to result in a functional limb. So you can always do an amputation or a rotation plasty. Um, uh, for those of you that don't really know what a rotation plasty is, it's basically a, you do a transfemoral amputation, so it's an above knee amputation. Um, and then you turn the foot backwards uh, so that the toes are facing behind you. And then you reattach the uh, tibia to the remnant of the femur. And now their ankle, now that their foot is facing backwards functions as their new knee. And some kids can be so freaking functional with the rotation plasty. It's pretty incredible um, watching you for some of them. It's, it's difficult to tell exactly which leg is amputated and I uh, I had a few in fellowship that I mean one kid played shortstop for his high school baseball team and all this stuff so like they can they can do a lot of stuff with a rotation plasty but uh, trying to convince kids and their parents that uh, rotation plasty is a viable option to the <laughs> social <laughs> stigma getting over it is very very difficult for them to do to because uh, these the kids who get it are like eight to 14 years old. And I mean, kids are mean <laughs> out there. Yeah, they so are. it's like, like these, like I heard, uh, another kid just got bullied like crazy because of the way their leg looked and all this stuff. And so you get some of these sad stories about it, but, um, if they do go through with it, they can, they can be very functional. So, um, it's nothing that I really push my pay- patients to get just because we have fairly good limb salvage reconstructive options, but, um, I always do bring it up and I show them videos cause you can find videos of rotation, plastic kids running, jumping, playing, doing all that stuff. And sometimes they say, Oh, that's interesting. But others are like, ah, that, you are never going to do that to my,
0: <laughs> <life>. no way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopaedic Surgeons, created for US residency programs and free to residents. ROCK covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful, board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to Rock content is free to residents. Get started at
1: rock.aaos.org. And then kind of moving down the leg here, um, what is fibular deficiency associated with?
0: Yeah. So some of the same things you just mentioned. So the fibular deficiency uh, could be associated with femoral deficiency. Again, cruciate ligament deficiency, um, coxa, vera, genu valgum. Um, you can have a ball and socket ankle, um, tarsal coalition, absent rays. So kind of a lot of these limb, um, some of these kind of limb deformities, you know? So again, so fibular deficiency, if you don't have a fibula, you can kind of, like, think through some of these things. Like, okay, well, if I don't have a fibula, you know, my LCL typically attaches on on the fibula. Um, so there may be some ligament uh, deficiencies or the cruciate ligament deficiencies. You may have coxavera, because again, you don't have a fibula. You may have genu, um, genu valgum, uh, tarsal coalitions, these absent rays. So a lot of things it can be associated with. Now, what is the only lower limb deficiency? Um, with a defined inheritance pattern? Maybe this may be the only one that hopefully that they'll ask a, a question on because this has a defined inheritance. But again, so what's the only limb lower limb deficiency with a defined inheritance pattern?
1: Uh, that's going to be tibial deficiency, and it is autosomal dominant. Um, the treatment is going to be dependent on knee function. If knee function is present, that is going to be a either a below knee amputation or a syme amputation, depending on the length of the residual tibia. Um, if there is no knee function, then a knee disarticulation um, is going to be knee preferred treatment. And I say knee disarticulation because this is the pediatrics uh, section. And um, for pediatric uh technically above knee amputations, if you can preserve the distal femur, um, then you're going to help that limb grow as long as possible uh, for them eventually when they turn into adolescents and teenagers. Uh, So um, you give them the longest limb possible, which is going to result in the uh, best function for the patient. Um, But over time, they may want to have that Uh, limb shortened uh, by a kind of a higher amputation because the prosthesis puts their knee at a different level compared to their other one. But at least with these younger kids, if you are going to do a uh, above knee amputation, you want to preserve that distal femur as much as possible. Um, And then what is associated with congenital dislocation of the knee?
0: Yeah, so that's going to be associated with developmental dysplasia of the hip as well as club foot. Um, but the thing is, whenever patients have a congenital dislocation of the knee, you want to treat this first uh, and not, not necessarily the DDH. Like so you, if you think you try to put these kids in a pelvic harness, it may not work because their knee is dislocated. Um, so you treat this with stretching followed by casting. And again, so you want to address the congenital knee dislocation before, um, before addressing the hip dysplasia if it's present. And so, what is the treatment for a congenital patellar dislocation?
1: Well, the congenital uh, patellar dislocations—one—they are difficult to pick up, like really difficult, because kids' legs are super chunky. Um, but if they, for whatever reason, gets uh, get some X-rays done or whatever, um, uh, that because the patella Uh, just like in adolescence, is going to dislocate out laterally. Um, Same thing happens with the kids. And so you're going to do a lateral release with a realignment surgery, which is either a medial uh, kind of a plication or uh, kind of reinforcing that MPFL uh, versus some sort of osteotomy. But in kids so young, you want to avoid that tibial tubercle osteotomy because that is Part of one of their growth plates, and so if you can, uh, basically just treat this soft tissue wise, that is always kind of preferred uh, for the for the really young kids, and then um, you'll you'll see some of this stuff throughout residency, and um, maybe you saw it in medical school on like a family medicine rotation, but uh, you you've heard about Oscar Slaughter's disease, and then the less common one is the syndic Larson uh, Johansson syndrome. So what is the difference between Osgood-Slaughter and sending Larson johansson syndrome?
0: Yeah, it's going to be kind of where the pathology is. They both can kind of present with like some generalized knee pain, but when you do a more focused physical exam and maybe even x-rays can, can help, uh, diagnoses, Osgood-Slaughter is going to be pathology more at the tibial tubercle and sending Larson. um, uh johansson's syndrome is going to be at the inferior pole of the patella so again oscar slaughter is going to be at the tibial tubercle sending larson johansson is going to be at the inferior pole of the, of the patella and both of these are going to be symptomatic treatment now um we talked about this a little bit in our sports talk um but we might as well just bring it back around since we're talking some pediatric stuff but what is the best view to diagnose an osteochondritis desiccans um, lesion of the knee
1: So that's the notch view Um, is the, is the best view on radiographs to see it. Um, But an MRI is also very good to evaluate the uh, kind of OCD lesions or osteochondritis desiccant lesions of the knee. Um, You're going to be treating a lot more of these than I will, but Mm -hmm. uh, basically the treatment uh, options, if they are an open physis, you're going to, limit their activities, uh, non-operatively treat them and see if this is something that is going to spontaneously resolve. Uh, But that MRI is going to give you a good indication if it will spontaneously resolve or not, because um, once they reach skeletal maturity and they have one of these, um, you're going to look for any sort of cartilage disruption. And if you see cartilage disruption and fluid behind the cartilage. So in between the cartilage and the bone, um, those are highly, highly unlikely to spontaneously resolve and heal. Um, You're going to uh, operate on those either with, uh, I may be speaking out of turn here, but like a, like an OATS procedure or some sort of osteochondral uh, allograft. Um, And if the lesion is greater than two uh, centimeters squared, then you're going to also want to operate on those uh, just so they can uh, have a more functional knee and uh, have a less risk of development of uh, arthritis as they age.
0: Ooh, yeah, there are a lot of lower extremity uh, deformities. We hope that you all enjoyed this episode of the Nailed Ortho podcast. We hope that you all are subscribed, and we hope that you all have told... We hope you all have told All of the residents in your class at this point, if you've been listening to us for this long, or even if it's your first episode, please tell your friends about us and we will see you all next time.